0: and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information, and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Today, I'm talking to Brooke Heberling, author of the best-selling novel, Protecting Her Peace, Brooke is a teacher, advocate and eating disorder survivor who wants to use her story of recovery to help others know that there is hope in fighting for freedom from the disorders and addictions that hold us hostage. Brooke worked with Jessica Flint and her team at Recovery Warriors from 2017 to 2020 as Editor and Chief Social Media Director and Top Writing Contributor she received the Humanitarian Award for her advocacy work in the eating disorder community from the MANA Fund in 2022, whilst also donating $13,000 to the fund that helped her pay for her own eating disorder treatment in 2016 when she ran out of money but still needed the time to heal. Brooke is also an ex marathon runner who almost lost her life to exercise addiction and anorexia. She decided to get help When she saw her own two children beginning to use behaviours around food that she wished repeatedly that she'd never learned. Brooke went to inpatient treatment for seven weeks at the Carolina House in Durham, North Carolina in February 2016, followed by further treatment at Atlanta Center for Eating Disorders. It took Brooke eight months of treatment but with hard work and hard truths she came out as a survivor. Following her own journey, Brooke was determined to create the book that she needed at the start of her eating disorder recovery journey. She recognised that there were already many non fiction resources out there, but her heart needed to see proof from the survivors who paved the way before her in recovery. In Brooke's book, Protecting Her Peace, her main character, Ruby Blue, lives a story of perseverance and grit to encourage anyone suffering that there is a way out of an eating disorder, whilst also enlightening the depths of the disease to those who may not understand it. It is a book that hits all the topics that many women face on a daily basis. Marriage, motherhood, friendship, anxiety, depression, addiction, disordered eating and disordered exercising. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Brooke today to hear about her own healing journey the eating disorders work she continues to be involved in, and her incredible book, written to inspire and give hope to all in recovery. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you
1: so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here and talking with your audience because it's such an important mission that you are completing by Putting this out there and being an open therapist to anybody that needs one. It's
0: awesome. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being here, Brooke. And I know you've had a bit of a busy day today, haven't you? Like running from one thing to the next to be here. Yes.
1: Yes, ma'am. I am a high school teacher as well as now a best selling author. So I am trying to learn and juggle all these new roles, these wonderful roles that. Takes many hats to wear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well done, you. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. So, Brooke, you've been on your own sort of eating disorder healing journey, haven't you? And you sort of refer to yourself as a survivor, which is like really inspirational. So, could you just tell us a little bit about your journey?
1: Yes. So, my journey's an interesting one because I think it's unique to me, but there are so many people out there that have suffered for a long, long time in silence and then get to a point where they just can't physically, mentally, spiritually do it anymore. And so my eating disorder journey kind of started when I was around 15, 14, 15, I had a family that was very, very, very health conscious, And I guess my family's motto back in the nineties was I eat to live. I don't live to eat. And I was kind of the black sheep of the family. I loved food mm-hmm. and I loved to eat. And I remember feeling back in that time period, just not Normal because everyone else around me was fine with just eating to live, yet I enjoyed food. And um, I also was kind of a perfect storm. I was a diver in high school, a diver like a springboard diver. So I was in a bathing suit on display, being judged for my perfection on a daily basis, both in practice and in meets. And I also had a boyfriend at the time that was a bodybuilder and was very conscious about what he put in his body and how he used food as fuel, not enjoyment or pleasure. So I kind of had this background of, I felt the joy and the love and the pleasure in food, yet Everyone around me was telling me that was wrong, either subconsciously by their own actions and how they spoke about food to themselves or directly of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're going to eat that. You have to be in a bathing suit. I can't believe that you, that, I mean, just add in any diet culture, just terrible saying, you know, Mm. that I've heard them all. And I was also, it's interesting because I was listening to one of your old podcasts and talking about people that were some, a woman that was embedded in sports and how like leaving that sport, she saw the changes in her body. Whereas mine started so young, you know, 15 years old. I thought that my body had to look like it did when I was 15 When I was 20, when I was 30, I never gave myself permission to actually become a woman. I had this idea and this mold in my head of what I could not surpass weight-wise or even body style-wise. I had in my mind, I was the fit diver and I would do anything to keep that image and that persona in my mind. And when I did start fluctuating weight, or if I would change body style wise a little bit, I would use a disordered behavior to get back down to where I thought in my brain, I had deemed as acceptable. And it was a rocky, <laughs> terrible, tumultuous road from about age 15 to 30 I had set in my mind that if I deviated out of those i guess boundaries I set for my own body that I would do something to counteract that and it was never healthy <laughs> it was never mm. a a healthy choice it was always over exercising or getting rid of the food in any way, shape or form that I could, or limiting myself to not eat because, you know, and like so many people do, they counteract what they ate with, you know, an action or a, I guess, deprivation. And I was in this kind of yo-yo I call it a -a whack-a-mole. I know a lot of people call it yo-yo dieting. I was in this kind of whack-a-mole game with my eating disorder. So when one actual disordered habit would get way too overgrown or outblown or people would start to notice, oh, you're running a super large amount, like 20 miles a day probably isn't a healthy decision especially when you're not eating properly. And i would like, Oh, I got to quit running. So then I would change my food intake. And then I would, you know, I struggled with bulimia. I struggled with just binge eating with restriction. It was a daunting time. And I was lying to everyone around me and telling everyone around me that was concerned or voicing concern what they wanted to hear. And then I would just go in the dark and do what I did to make it okay with myself and my eating disorder, not myself, my ed self. Mm -hmm. It was hard. It was very lonely. I was very lonely in my mind and in my body for a very long time.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds like a real kind of roller coaster, doesn't it? Like you say, like you're in this kind of really lonely and isolated place, dealing with this obsession with food, obsession with exercise, other behaviors, trying to control your weight and shape. And it sounds like it was just completely all consuming. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I
1: feel, <laughs> I feel like. The time period, so many women of my generation, you know, millennial women that grew up in the 90s and then through the early 2000s. And we had so many of these unrealistic ideals to live up to of these celebrities and these pop stars and actresses that were so ungodly skinny And it was a trend that I had the anxiety, the depression, the nature and nurture that led me down to believing that that was the only way if I looked that way, or if I had the certain body style, that was the only way that I was going to be successful in life. And that was the only way I was going to be accepted, not only by the world around me, but by myself, like it was more of a punishment and a boundary that I liked to blame on everyone else around me when I was younger. But now as an adult, I realize, yes, there were suggestions. Yes, there were obvious influences in my life that really showed me the disordered ways, but it was ultimately my choice and my core belief to attach myself to my body as my worth. Does Mm. that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it really makes sense. I think it highlights a really great point actually that obviously we have always these sort of predisposing factors, don't we? Things that make us vulnerable, maybe things that happened in our family, like you said, with the diving, with the boyfriend, maybe feeling a bit like the black sheep of the family, not feeling good enough maybe in some ways. You have all those things coming together, but then I think once someone gets, you know, like yourself or anyone else gets in those kind of perpetuating eating disorder cycles, the past becomes less relevant, doesn't it? And you're kind of, you know, you're just caught in this sort of horrible cycles really where the restriction maybe leads to like binging or purging or ex- over exercise, and, you know, back round again, you know, it, and
1: then, it's really then mm-hmm. we're the only ones that can get off that ride.
0: Um, Mm. We are the only
1: ones that can make the conscious decision to, yes, this is what I learned. Yes, this is how I felt about Mm. my body. This is what I was told about my body. But ultimately, who has to live in this body? Who has to live in this life? It's not the people that I am listening to. It's not the people that I'm modeling myself after. It's me. I'm the main character in this movie that I'm creating and of my life, this story, right? And Mm. if I don't want it to be this way, I have to step off the moving sidewalk and take a hard look at how I got here and how I need to forgive myself for getting here. Mm. And then moving forward, how can I learn to love myself in a way that I wasn't taught because that's what I want. And that's what I want to give to my children. When I was, I have two kids. They are wonderful. They're Anna Blue. She's nine, budding little actress here in small town, Georgia. She's so cute. And Mm -hmm. my son, who is almost 11, and he is an outdoorsman, fisherman, baseball, golf, all the things. And it's funny when i became a mother that's when so much of my past beliefs of myself kind of reared their ugly head and were not working for me anymore because mm. i saw these perfect little humans that were navigating the world and i am their leader i am their window to the world as their mother and What am I showing them if I am teaching them to hate themselves and hate their body and hate food, the life source of, you know, fuel that we need. I was 31 years old. My son was four and I started seeing him model the behaviors and feelings and thoughts towards food that I had at such a young age. At four, he was terrified of any sort of break in a routine. He didn't want to go out to eat. He didn't want to go to different places to eat at school. He would refuse to eat anything that wasn't in the norm safety of his little cocoon bubble with me at home he would have super anxious reactions to. And I had to step back. And instead of like, I'm very thankful that I had the insight in the, I guess, wherewithal to understand that this was me, that he was modeling. And I had his sweet little daycare director, because I've been a teacher since day one that they were born and, they went to an after-school program, and he sat me down and said, "Brooke, you know I'm concerned about your son." And I said, "What's the matter? Is he misbehaving? Like, what's going on?" She, he said, "No, I watch him terrified of food. Anytime we have snack time, any time we have a meal together as a class, like Graham is anxious, doesn't want to do it, gets uncomfortable." And looking back, this man visually probably understood that I had some disordered eating as well because I was not healthy uh, weight at the time. And I just broke down in his office and he was kind of the first person I confessed to. I said, sir, he gets it from me. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay. And he was very kind about it and very sweet and loving. But he basically said, so what are you going to do about it? And I was like, oh, dang it. I don't want to do anything about it. I want him to be fixed and me to continue to just be the way I am. And those two things be separate because that's how I want it. Because then I don't have to do anything hard work or look at myself to change so my kids don't suffer. And that's when I went to treatment. I got evaluated by a wonderful eating disorder treatment center here in Georgia, Mana Treatment. And it was, determined that I needed to immediately go into hospital care and I'm blessed enough that we scrounged up the money to pay for it, got loans. And I know your listeners probably understand treatment is not cheap (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I'm very, very thankful. I know here in America, it is not, it's not easy. It's not cheap to be able to put your life on hold and heal It's very costly and a lot of people just don't have the means to do it. That's why podcasts like this are so utterly important because it gives people a window to all these wonderful insights that these professionals that truly do care, they can help you. They can help you heal yourself. And I was fortunate enough to be in a position to where I got help And it was not easy. My whole eating disorder treatment process took about eight months in active eating disorder treatment and then has continued to be I've had to go back for check-ins in 2020 hit because I went to treatment for the first time in 2016 and I was doing great until 2020 hit and COVID kind of shut the world down. And of course, I got to a place where I was recognizing disordered habits again. And I went back and I went to counseling this time. Thank goodness. I didn't have to go the more extensive route, but it is, it's a life healing from an eating disorder is a lifelong commitment that is worth every single second, every single step forward, every single breath of air that you use Mm every financial means that you use it's so worth it because the alternative is just a sad and lonely life that's what it was for me it was a sad and lonely life within my brain as an existence and i just wasn't willing to live that way anymore nor was i willing to
0: teach my children to live that way Mm -hmm a quick advertisement break, are you a burned out, high achieving woman who's frustrated that emotional eating, weight gain and exhaustion are self-sabotaging your work and life? You're tired, fatigued, brain fogged your cravings are through the roof and you feel so insecure in your body and that's impacting the way you show up in your business, career and life. Who could you be if you actually addressed your emotional eating struggles, built food freedom and made peace with your body, free that's what? Get support to fully overcome emotional eating, address hormone and gut issues and build the body confidence and connection you've always desired. If you're ready to address each piece, be sure to check out Amber Omaniac, emotional eating, digestive and hormone expert with nine years of experience helping over 1,500 women with support on all of the above without diets, without restriction or quick fixes. She will do a full health assessment and help you get to the root of your symptoms with hormone testing, gut health and of course support to help your body come back to balance with your mind and soul. Visit amberapproved.ca to book a 30-minute body freedom call or check out the No Sugar Coating podcast today to learn more about the connections between our relationship with food, mindset and our health and how it impacts the way we show up in all areas of our lives. What, were the main aspects, I know like with the eating disorder treatment, I'm sure it's like very comprehensive and, you know, you must have covered so many different areas, but what was particularly helpful or stood out for you in that healing journey? I'm glad you asked that because it's not what you would think. When I went
1: into hospitalization, I went to a program in Durham, North Carolina at the Carolina House. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was given permission to exist where I was, how I was, and also nourish myself regardless of those things. I think often I used food and exercise as a way of punishing myself for not doing something that was in my realm of thinking that was right. If I didn't exercise the amount that I quote unquote had planned that day, then there's no way that I would have allowed myself to have a meal because I did not do anything to deserve it. For the first time, I was in a space where people were telling me I deserved to exist and fuel my brain and my body without guilt and without Mm -hmm conditions. And it was the most beautifully freeing thing about being in hospitalization treatment. I just felt like I was allowed to like food (laughs) and enjoy Mm. eating. And I was being told things that it was so funny because there's one specific interaction I had. And by the way, I've written a book about all of this. I'm going to kind of tell you one of the excerpts from my book right now, but I remember being in a treatment session where when somebody would leave, we would have kind of a celebration snack for them of like letting them on their way. And it was kind of a way for them to make something that was a fear food or a fear snack for them and celebrate with everybody and eat the food or the snack. And then it was kind of a going goodbye time. So we had at the treatment center that I was in, we had three of those in one day. It just so happened to work out that three beautiful survivors were branching out into the world and getting to go into step down programs. And it should have been a wonderful and joyful experience and for me to watch these women overcome what all the troubles and food problems that they had. But I was sitting there so angry because I not only had one challenge snack that day, not two, but I had three different Mm -hmm. snacks that were not the quote unquote norm that we would do in a specific day at this treatment center And I was mad. I took the dietician outside and I was 31 at the time. I'm in this place. There's, I think, the oldest other, there was one other I would consider, you know, old like woman my age in her 30s there. But it was mostly young girls that were, you know, thank God their parents were recognizing that they needed help. But I was like, I was pissed. I was like, listen, I'm sitting here having to eat. cupcake for breakfast. You know, I'm just using examples, but this for lunch and this for dinner, and you're telling me that this is healthy, that this is normal. It's not healthy. It's not normal. And the whole time that I was quote unquote, chewing out this poor dietitian, and with all my anorexic logic, she just let me go. And she just looked at me and all of a sudden she said, well, let me ask you this, Brooke. She said, you have children. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, have you ever had two birthday parties in one day and maybe a church function that night where you have to go celebrate your nephew in the morning and then another friend and then have, you know, a church meal, whatever are the, she's like, have you ever successfully made it through one of those days without using a behavior? And I said, no. And she said, well, guess what? She said, you're doing it today. And that's why we are, that's why we do Mm -hmm. this because in life, you know, it's not always going to be perfect, scheduled out routine, you know, eating habits, exercise habits, like life's going to throw in these different scenarios that you're going to have to navigate outside of this treatment center without leaning or crutching on your disordered habits. And it really hit me. I was like, you know what? She is right. I have literally never enjoyed a abnormal, what should be joyful, you know, connective celebration because I have always been so wrapped up in the food rules and the exercise rules and the breaking of the norms. I've never been able to do that. And she said, well, don't you want to? She's like, people, you know, you're allowed to deviate from the strict regimens that you have in your brain. And I, I was speechless. She said, I want to teach you that that's okay, that you can have days like this and you can have joy and you can celebrate people and things and events. And it doesn't have to be centered around the food or exercise that you are or are not eating or doing and it was a big game changer for me.
0: Hmm. Oh, thanks for sharing that. So Brooke, can you tell us then about your book, Protecting Her Peace? And yes. this is a fiction book, is it? And am I right, is this a book that you would have liked to have read yourself maybe at the start of your recovery? Yes, yeah, so um, I did
1: when I discovered that I was disordered by listening to podcasts, you know, 15 years ago, not podcasts 15 years ago, about five years ago, I was listening to podcasts and all of a sudden I started instead of, I was gravitating towards like recovery warriors and some different podcasts that have been around for a while discussing disordered eating and disordered habits. And all of a sudden I was like, dang, these people are sounding a lot like me. And I noticed myself gravitating towards these personal stories and then looking because I am an English major and an English teacher. I love literature. I love books. And I started diving into these memoirs, you know, Jenny Schaefer's memoir, Life Without Ed. And there's just all these beautiful connections of people surviving this disease, this disorder that takes so many people's lives, not only physically, but mentally. And I was inspired, but I was also, it was hard for me to be able to put myself in their shoes. Memoirs for me were so specific that I couldn't like, oh yeah, Jenny Schaefer, she's a badass. She can heal and do all that, but that's never going to happen for me. And I found myself wanting and needing this outlet, this fictional character that I could relate to, that I could champion behind, and then therefore take those lessons and those themes that a character is experiencing and put them in my own life. Because that's the way I process. That's the way that I learn. that I heal is through these stories, these fictional stories that I have my whole life. I've been a bookworm my whole life. And I finally said, once I got to a point of healing, I tried to write a memoir. I tried to write it out. And by some ungodly, great universal earthly shakedown, my computer crashed and I lost the entire thing. And this was about four years ago. I now know it's because it wasn't the story I was meant to write. I was not meant to write quote unquote, Brooke Heberling story. I was meant to write a fictional character who I came up with Ruby Blue. And I was meant to write Ruby Blue's story that way that Ruby could be a fictional character that so many people could see themselves in and it not be so specific to my life. Although my life is what I used as the research, I guess you could say, of creating this character and the experiences that this character faces. But I just feel like the world needed a fictional older character struggling with disordered eating that we could champion behind and that we could see that, yes, Ruby Blue had a rough go at it. Ruby Blue had a long way to go. Ruby Blue was, you know, completely overconsumed with her disorder, yet she dug in her claws and really pulled out of a hole that so many of us experience in mental health in many ways, other than just eating disorders, but addiction as well. And I wrote the book and I went through the process of getting it published. And I met a lot of no's. I met a lot of people that said that nobody wants to read something depressing, that mental health and eating disorders are just a little bit too touchy to that. I didn't find somebody that wanted to champion behind me in it. So I did it myself and the results have been kind of mind boggling and wonderful and protecting her peace debuted at number one in eating disorder and body image books on all platforms, on Barnes and Noble, on Amazon and in Kindle. So it just shows you that the world needed Ruby's story because there's so many of us that suffer in silence and I hate to say it this way, but it's true. Like back when I was suffering, I didn't feel like I was strong enough or worthy enough to heal. I thought that this was just going to be my life and that I had made this deal and this pact with the universe, with God that, you know, I was just going to suffer and that's how it had to be. And the truth is that's not the case. Like no one has to sit in the depths of darkness of a disorder or an addiction, like you can always claw your way out. And I wanted to give people hope of that.
0: Well, congratulations, Brooke, on the success of your book. It's wonderful to hear that it's been so well received. And like you said, the world definitely has needed this book, I think.
1: Yes, ma'am. I definitely think so. And I truly hope it continues to, it's not only for the sufferers. I think it's a beautiful story. It's a story about Ruby Blue, who recovered from an eating disorder, but then has a hiccup in her marriage where her husband makes a mistake. And instead of taking it personally, she decides to really hold on to all the truths that she learned about herself within therapy. And it kind of flashes back to those moments. And it really shows that regardless of what obstacle comes in life, that as long as you're willing to keep fighting, like you're going to keep making strides to get better. And it also shows how loved ones... I really wrote it too because there were so many people in my life that when I was suffering, and still this day, people emailing me, talking to me, calling me about the book saying, I did not know it was that bad. And so often, what we see people suffering from on the outside, the mental and inner aspect of that, and what we do in the dark is 20 times worse. And I wanted, to write the book to help others that are loved ones, parents, spouses, siblings, best friends of these people that suffer. So they can have a tool to kind of see like what goes on in the inner workings of somebody's brain that suffers from this and how can they be present and really learn to speak and talk to somebody who is struggling because it is it's hard for those who watch their loved ones just deteriorate or crumble from these disorders and addictions
0: and I know this is a quite a complex question but for any carers or loved ones who are listening I mean I know there are many things carers can do but What would you say that your number one message would be to carers and family who are trying to support but don't know how? Like, where's the starting point for them?
1: The greatest thing, the greatest tool that I give to people is ask questions without expecting the answer. There's so many times that we, as, and I've learned this by also looking at my own children as well, and as a caregiver for my own children. Asking questions is the best without making assumptions. So if, for example, one of my biggest, I was running addict, I had an addiction to running and one of the biggest hardships for me was giving up that physical activity, that physical, I don't know what you would call it, that running was like my drug, that my feet on the concrete, that explanation of getting things and out of my head and just, Physically running them to death was how I wanted to escape. And my husband, so lovingly and wonderfully, would, when I would tell him, I have to go run, instead of saying, You don't need to run. That's terrible. Like, this is stupid. He would sit down. And he'd be like, Well, tell me why. Like, why do you feel like you need to run right now? And him just prompting those questions, I would say, Well, because I feel like I didn't stick to my meal plan and I need to compensate for it. Well, what is the rule Brooke about sticking to the meal plan? Are there days that they're going to deviate? Yes. Like, and all these questions that he would ask me that would then in turn help me get to the point to where I was making the decision of, okay, I really don't have to run today. Instead of him telling me that I don't need to run That was a big game changer. It was taking my power that I was giving to the eating disorder and then giving it back to myself. So I think my final answer would definitely be ask questions without assumptions and see where the conversation goes and really kind of make a space to communicate with your loved one about how they're feeling. And, you know, it's funny. I heard somebody say, we pay all these therapists to just like, listen to us. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it is, it's a wonderful thing. And I've done it, gosh, for 20 years of my life, and I will continue to do so. But also giving myself permission to have those type of conversations and that open dialogue with the person that loves me most in the world, I should be able to do that. And so it takes asking questions and listening, I think is the biggest thing for a caregiver.
0: Mm. Yeah, And it sounds like with that questioning, it's sort of done like with a lot of just curiosity and compassion, isn't it really? You know, yes. it's not coming from a judgmental place, really. It's just sort of opening up that exploration. And like you say, like it's almost putting the responsibility onto you, isn't it? I guess you as the recoverer, person in recovery that you're starting to then question things yourself and maybe explore things or look at things a bit differently. And I guess it's not going to be an overnight transformation, is it? But it's starting to like, in a drip, drip way, you start to take your power back, which is a game changer over the long term, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And people that suffer from eating disorders, a lot of it is about power and control. And if you shift that, those like, you know, we have these rules in this dialogue we've had with ourselves and our brain for so long, but that. Dialogue can be shifted and you can take control in a positive way instead of a negative way. And I think educating yourself, listening to podcasts, talking to people, survivors, you know, it's just gathering all the information and all the tools that people, you know, say, help them figuring out what works for you and then committing. It's just recovery is a commitment. Because just like any vice in this world, it is really easy to just do the easiest thing. It's really easy to not use the knowledge that you have. As a person, I know I need fuel, I need calories to fuel my organs and my body so I can live and be a mother and a teacher and a wife and a friend and a sister. And if I don't listen to myself, I'm not the exception to the rule. My body biologically needs fuel just like anyone else's body. My body needs rest just like any like anyone else's body. I think so often we, as our ego gets in the way and we think we're the exception, and we're not like we're not. We're biologically need food, need rest, need space to flourish and be ourselves. And a lot of education. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm a teacher. I love it. I so enjoyed learning about the biology and the chemistry behind like what our body actually needs and why we have to eat. It's not just a formality. It's something that is needed and there's explanations for it, scientific explanations. I think that's cool too. If you're really struggling with Accepting and loving yourself in the means of like in your relationship with your body and food, I challenge people to learn about it, like research, look at the functions of what amino acids do in your body, of what lipids, fats, like why our brain needs these. And I think that was a big game changer for me as well. So, not only allowing myself to be in a space, but knowing that I'm not the exception. Like, I have a body just like everybody else. I have to feel it. And this is why.
0: Yeah. Wise words. So Brooke, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? And also where can they get hold of your book? I know you have already mentioned a few different places, but do you want to just like clarify that to the listeners? Of course.
1: Yeah. So I'm very active on Instagram. So author Brooke Heberling is my Instagram and you could find me there. I also, my book is Protecting Her Peace. It is available on Amazon, on Kindle, and on Barnes & Noble as well. And it is, it's a book not only for people that understand and suffer from eating disorder and addiction, but it is such a wonderful tool for the caregivers to have an understanding of the inner workings of a mind of a person that suffers and how they can be there and support and also help themselves and stand up for themselves too. Because being a caregiver of somebody that is suffering from an eating disorder is not easy. Kudos to everyone out there that has ever loved or supported somebody that's gone through it. Y'all are the true rock stars.
0: Thanks, Brooke. Well, I should make sure all those details are in the show notes. So Brooke, I just really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's wonderful just to hear your story. And I think it's going to give so much hope and inspiration to so many people because of You really have walked a very difficult path and been right in the trenches of an eating disorder, but have come out the other side and now really helping, supporting and inspiring others. So really appreciate you coming and sharing your story. So thank you so much. Well, it
1: all started with people like you that were guiding me to love myself. So Harriet, you're amazing. Thank you so much for all you do.
0: Thanks, Brooke. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did do go and check out all of Brooke's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at Therapist underscore. For further support with your relationship with food, do go to theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.